This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School. And tonight, my very dear colleagues and co-hosts, Mike Usim and Jeff Klein, are off this evening. And this is a little bit of a homecoming for me because I've been out for the last two weeks. I've been in China and in fact, in one of those weeks, I was with the one and only Mike Usim. And it was a real treat to have the opportunity to work side by side with Mike as he gave some talks about strategic leadership to a group of real estate entrepreneurs in China. And very interesting to be there against the backdrop of the trade wars. So, I learned a lot and really just so appreciate the opportunity to have the chance to go to Shanghai and then to Beijing simply uh, by virtue of my position here at the Wharton School. So feel very blessed and also very grateful to be here tonight. And in fact, tonight, I feel like once again, I have a little bit of a battlefield promotion, as Mike Usim would say, because Mike is the person I think of as our CEO whisperer. But tonight... I am the one who has the honor and the privilege of speaking with CEO and chairman of a company responsible for steel, steel production, $2.7 billion sales in North America. And our CEO is Barry Ziegelman, the chairman and CEO of Ziegelman Industries. And I would like to welcome Barry to the show. Barry, welcome. Oh, thanks, Anne. Thanks for having me. Well, really, really an honor and a pleasure pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. And I, you know, when I was reading through the preparatory material for tonight's show, I was a little bit torn, I have to say, because, you know, there's so much to talk about with respect to the company, but there's also a lot to talk about with respect to you. So I'm sort of hoping that maybe we could do both, but I can't resist maybe starting on a little bit more of a personal note. And I understand that you were in college at at the university in, uh, in uh, Canada, at York University in Toronto, Ontario, when your education was interrupted and suddenly you found yourself responsible for, if I understand it right, the family business. Is that is that how it went? Yeah, that's correct. I um, I was uh, about in the middle or uh, close to the end of my first year. It was March, and um, uh, you know, found out my my dad who uh, who who was ill. Um, you know, through through the years, he was a little bit older and and had a, he had a tough life coming from Europe and through the war, but uh, was pretty sick, and um, he. Um, unexpectedly passed away so it was about two weeks after my 19th birthday and uh, um, I had an older brother who was 23 a younger brother who was 17 Uh, none of us of course were in the business we knew about it and the business was really pretty fledgling Um, at the time my my dad was trying to get it off the ground it was a steel tubing business he had gotten into and uh, really at that time it was virtually bankrupt about five employees Mm -hmm. about five million of negative retained earnings and losing money every month. So it was a, it was a pretty wow. scary proposition at the time. Oh, boy. So, well, having uh, lost my mother at a young age in my 20s, I can uh, appreciate that sudden and unexpected loss at a at a young age. You know, I'm just trying to picture, like, what were some of the first steps? How did you even figure out what might be roles and responsibilities for you and your and your two brothers? Yeah, I mean, my younger brother obviously, uh, um, you know, continued on. He was still in high school. My older brother had just um, uh, finished up. He was finishing. Uh, he was in his PhD program uh, at Rochester University, um, uh, trying to do his PhD in, in uh, finance. Anyways, we, um, you know, we came home. Uh, we evaluated the situation and, and saw what we had. I, I would tell you that. 
you know, probably through uh, being naive and and and, and no uh, no experience at all, we really you know looked at each other and we said, you know, hey, Dad loved this. He had a dream about it, and you know, I was pretty mechanically inclined. Alan was more, really more like an engineer. My brother Alan, mm-hmm. um, you know, really knowledgeable uh, guy, smart guy, and could dig into things and, and ask the right questions and. We just decided to make a go of it. I don't know why. I mean, if I had to look back at it today, we were crazy. <laughs> um, but something compelled us to do it. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we jumped in. Um, you know, he figured out certain things. I was on the shop floor and, and, and figured out how to run the machines and load the trucks. And we, we just, um, uh, you know, we looked at it and said, you buy steel for X, you sell tubing for Y. If we get to this volume, you know, we'll we'll, we'll cover and get to a break even and, and stop the bleeding and see where we can go from there. So uh, that's what we did. And, and mm. literally, um, you know, it was 18, 20 hours a day. And, you know, everybody in the community thought we were crazy. But <laughs> here we are today. So, wow. You know. Wow. Really very impressive. And just to be clear, was Alan your older brother who was in the Ph.D. program? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And and I'm just curious, did he ever go back and complete that program or was it just education was interrupted and the the rest is history? Yeah, the, that's exactly right. And, and you know, later on, um, you know, probably in the mid 90s, Alan's role, you know, d- diminished in, in that regard. He never really you know took on a finance role. It was more of a, a technical role. And, um, he, you know, uh, at, a, at a point mid mid 90s ish, he kind of bowed out and you know you know i i um took over the real leadership and reins uh in, yeah. in terms of, of of all day-to-day operations and and just kept pushing with it so um yeah we just kind of found our roles yeah and your and your younger brother clayton how about yeah. is that right and did he continue in the company uh no you know he didn't he um you know he he came in for a little bit um but really it was pretty clear that that this became my baby and and yeah. uh, they let me run with it and Clayton actually is a, a a brilliant guy very successful uh internet company that he has uh called uh, uh managed network systems MNSI he's an ISP provider and and long distance phone and and internet TV and uh really really has done well he's uh that's his love and and uh, you know he's he's consumed by that and and that's what he does uh you know every day Oh boy! All right. So now, Barry, I'm a teacher, so you have to bear with me. Um, and I and I know if Mike and Jeff, my colleagues, were here, they would agree that there's education in the classroom and that the world is a classroom. So there there are lots of ways of learning. So I'm I'm wondering how you went about getting the education required to run the company that you know that your company has now become. How did, how did that happen? Well, you, you know, it's, it's a great question, uh, and in, in, in many respects, I'm not sure. I, I mean, you know, really uh, survival instinct. You know, um, you know, I, I used to put together the income statements and, mm-hmm. and the customs papers and, and learn how to go sell. And, you know, you know, a lot of these things, I think, came from real early childhood, you know, just, you, you know, um, being an entrepreneur from an early age, whether it was paper routes or detasseling corn or, you know, uh, uh, working in a scrapyard or, or uh, washing dishes at, at, at Ota. I mean, all of these things gave you lessons on work ethic, um, mm-hmm. how to be and deal with people, um, empathy as to what a, 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 an employee goes through on a day-to-day basis, how long a day can be, how hot it is, all of these things. I mean, you know, at the end, Mm-hmm. You know, it really comes down to people, and 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 um, you, you know, you can have all the equipment you want. Um, uh, you know, customers are another thing, but when you when you are able to engage and empower a team, uh, and that being your, you know, all of the, all of your teammates in the organization, and 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 find a way um, uh, to to get them involved. You know, it's a it's a extremely powerful tool that that you get a, a, a you know, massively high return on i think it gets forgotten too much people will mm-hmm. talk about it but you know they don't really they don't really talk the talk but do they walk the walk and uh, i would say it's it's the single biggest contributor
contributor to, to our success was our, our ability to engage those people, empower them, and to also know what we didn't know, right? And bring <laughs> the people in uh, uh, that, that could help out and have that expertise and rely on them and let them go. You know, you, you kind of have to learn to give up control to get control. In micromanaging, you'll never, you'll never build uh, you know, a proper team and a proper structure. So, you know, you know, all of those things. I mean, some of it was just instinct and, and probably happened at an early age, even listening to my father and others. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I became very adept at at the, the financial aspects of the operation, certainly the commercial side. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, one goes with the other and, you know, it's one step at a time and put one foot here and the next foot in front of the other one and, and you keep going. And, um, um, you know, truth be told, I, I, it's remarkable we ended up where we ended up. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of things happen the right way. And there's luck involved in that. There's mm-hmm. hard work, there's timing, there's all of those things. That's so great. Well, you know, already you reminded me of uh, two conversations I've had in the past, and actually, again, just through the the benefit of this show, uh, two generals, one Anne Dunwoody, who uh, wrote a book called um, A Higher Standard, and one of her comments was that leadership begins at home, and she meant literally at home. And so part of what I'm hearing in your response is that there was just some early education about entrepreneurship maybe gleaned from your from your father. And and then uh we also had the opportunity to speak with uh retired general Stanley McChrystal who is fond of saying when it comes to leadership you said you know you have to give up control to get control. His version of that was, you know, keep your eyes on but your hands off. Yeah, yeah it's, very, it's very true. You, you know, it. Um, you know, when when you're able to do that, and you give people that opportunity, um, you, you know, first off, you'll see who rises to that occasion. But also, they'll run with it faster mm-hmm. and harder than you ever than you ever would, because you can't just handle all aspects of of, of the the uh, the business and the operation. So. Um, you, you know, it's 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 a, a unique quality to have and be able to do, and um, you know, I think that's probably one of the the biggest uh, uh, secrets to to mm-hmm. our ability to grow and succeed. All right, now I will get to to the present, I promise. But Barry, sure. so you're you're 19 years old. Your brother's 23. Your younger brother's 17. You're running the business. There are five people initially. Yeah. How did you um, navigate? with those five individuals who were accustomed to working with your father? Well, you, you know, they really weren't accustomed to working with my dad. My dad was not not in great health. There was just a plant manager out there, and there was a, a controller. My dad didn't get out to the plant that much. Maybe one of the reasons that it, it failed. I don't know uh-huh. that he ever should have gone into that business. But, you know, nevertheless, <laughs> look, I, I walk out on the floor, and I'm 19 years old, and obviously, um, you, you know, they're looking at me like, oh, my God, this, 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 kid, this kid's going to be telling us what to do. And they learned pretty quick that, yeah, I, I was. And, you know, I was confident, and mm-hmm. I worked hard, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I gained their respect uh, uh, pretty quickly. You know, uh, um, got a lot of dirt under my fingernails, learned, put the hours in 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 in, in some pretty hard conditions. I mean, this was old equipment; it was breaking down every thirty and forty-five minutes. Um, you know, we barely had money to fix it. Um, didn't have money for raw materials. I mean, I used to, you know, wait for a truck driver to call me when he was, you know, 30, 40 minutes away that he had a, a coil of steel and he'd be in. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd call the guys in and we'd, we'd prep the steel and put it in the machine and, you know, run it for a couple hours. And then that was it. You know, we'd send it out and, and, and put it on a, on a truck, uh, when we were, when it was ready. And, you know, it was it was wait for the check to come in. It was unbelievable. I, I, I you know, I, I, I don't know how we survived, but you know, eight months later we turned a profit. Oh, I'll, I, I'll never forget it. It was four thousand dollars in that in that month, and um, you, you know, it was uh, remarkable. And how you how you learned how to manage cash. Um, you know, you can make a lot of money, and we did. I mean, the the, the first year, we we. Um, 
Um, we made a little bit of money the next year. I think sales went to seven million from two, and then to eleven, then nineteen, then then twenty four, then forty. And and while we were making money, what I learned that was that cash is king. I mean, you can make a lot of money and have a business that's cash strapped and really go under um, because you're feeding inventory and receivables and capital um, uh, capital. Uh, CapEx plans to, to, to make the equipment better. And, you know, here I am uh, making money, yet I'm borrowing money every year. And, and, and we didn't take out a dividend out of the company for 20 years. Oh, wow. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it was, it was, it was interesting, but, um, you know, it just grew. It grew and grew and grew. And, and, and in an industry that, you know, everyone said had tremendous overcapacity, and it did. And, um, you know, we really should never have survived. But I think we were off people's radar uh, because we were so small that, they, you know, they didn't pay attention to us. And we just kept doing our thing and and um, came up with some unique solutions. And uh, and certainly the, the biggest one was empowering the people. And, uh, you know, I, I can get to that you know, later in this discussion about exactly how it happened and uh, and and what it meant to us, but it was it was remarkable. Well, very good. Well, just let me pause here for a second sure. and just remind everyone that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School Channel One Thirty Two. I have the pleasure of speaking with Barry Ziegelman, the chairman and CEO of Ziegelman Industries, and I am Anne Greenhall. So, Barry, along the way, you mentioned the importance of advisors or people who can give you some counsel. So could you, know, could you just pause on that for a minute? Who, who was instrumental in helping you learn the ropes as you, you know, got hold and turned, turned this business around? Yeah, so just early on, there was a you know uh, um, obviously a, a lawyer that was involved who was friends with the family, and you, you know uh, in the beginning, I mean, my God, I'd call him four or five times a day, um, and then there was you, you know an individual that worked with my dad. His name was Joe Ponick, and um, Joe was the controller. He he was kind of a jack of all trades, and you know Joe Joe you know really could have left that company when my dad died and got another job. Um, obviously looking at, oh, my God, you know, my future is going to be dependent on this 19- and 23-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I should run. Well, you know, Joe didn't. And um, um, uh, I get a little a little choked up when I talk about him because he's, he's passed uh, uh, some years back. But um, without Joe Ponick, we wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's someone who stood by us, uh, taught mm-hmm. us little day-to-day things, um, w- was there to guide us, um, you know, never took a sick day, and, and uh, you know, became a, a mentor, a, a friend, and, and somewhat of a father figure to me. Yeah. Um, and, and just, you know, there's, there's several people like that that, you know, um, uh, we wouldn't be in existence today without. So, uh, you, you know, I, I can't thank them enough, and, and I remember them mm-hmm. often. Oh, that's so good. Now, I'm just curious, why do you think he stayed? I think he had a, lo- a love uh, for my father and affinity mm-hmm. for him and, and a loyalty. He he knew us since we were, you know, somewhat younger. Um, mm-hmm. um, so I, I I think it was just a, a sense of loyalty. I, yeah. I, I really do. And, and, you know, when he saw that we weren't joking around and that we weren't, um, this wasn't a game to us and we were very serious and, and we were prepared to do whatever it it, it, it took and work hard, that um you know he 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 felt that he was there too and and yeah. um and you know look we had fun and <laughs> and I, i'll say that to anybody that you know you've got to do what you love to do um that that's the absolute you, you know uh, a secret to success i mean yeah. you know when you find that uh, you know i just got asked the other day um you know when are you going to retire i said from what <laughs> they, they said from work. I said I don't work. I, I said I don't That's work. Great. This isn't work to me. This is yeah. this is my life. I said this is this is like breathing to me. I mean, it, yeah. I, I I don't consider any of this work. This is my existence, and I just absolutely love to do it every day. I I, I I'm consumed by it, mm-hmm. and I really don't consider any day that I get up and jump out of bed to go do this as going to work, it, it doesn't even occur to me as it doesn't feel like work to me. Oh, that's, that's really wonderful. Well, Barry, let me, let me just make sure our listeners really appreciate uh, the, the jump from a company that was in the red, five people, three young, young men trying to run it, Atlas Tube. Am I right? Correct me if I'm wrong. 2,000 tons 
1986 to over 1.3 million tons of steel today. And today, Ziegelman Industries, the parent of Atlas Tube, American Tube, Wheatland Tube, Western Tube, Energex, Sharon Tube, Pacoma, and Z-Modular now produces over 2.4 million steel tons per year in 17 plants and employs over 2,400 people throughout the United States and Canada. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's crazy. I I, I mean, uh, the, the the company went, and uh, you know, some of these numbers are public. But you know, when we um, we we built it up to a company uh, in 2006, which was you know 20 years later, about 1.2 billion in sales and and over 200 million dollars of EBITDA a, a year. So. You know, it's not a low-margin business the way no. we, we we did it. Very very profitable, uh, zero debt at that time, and uh, and um, you know we were the uh, we were by far the 800-pound gorilla in the industry, and still are today, of course. Uh, um, and um, you know you know really proud of it, and uh, and that's when um, uh, you know we were approached by uh, by Carlisle, so uh, right. uh, uh, to to do a, to do a um, a transaction. But yeah, uh, yeah it's it's just a. Uh, I, I don't know how. I honestly, I know how it happened. There were many key steps along the way, but it's just remarkable it did. Yeah, let's talk about the uh, engagement with Carlisle. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, we, you know, we had we had built this business. It was um, regarded as you know we were regarded as the the best operators in the industry um, for many reasons: extremely low cost, uh, high market share, um, great depth and breadth of product. And, and just you know the, the the way we operate and purchasing power, the scale we had, all of those things. Carlisle had had um, purchased a, a business in in a different end of the tubing spectrum. You know, we were structural tube, which would go into buildings and uh, bridges and agricultural equipment, more <clears throat> fabrication. And uh, Carlisle bought a business called Wheatland Tube. John Manili Company was the parent of that, and that business produced electrical conduit, uh, plumbing pipe. Um, some energy tubular goods, um, you, you know, mm. things of that nature, fence tubing, galvanized mm. mechanical tubing with galvanized fence tubing. And uh, um, they had come to us, you know, wanting to consolidate the industry and build some mm. scale. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, they said, look, we'd like to buy you and um, we'd love you to run it. And, you, you know, that didn't interest me at all. Um, <laughs> Uh, you, you know what was I going to do? I'm not surprised. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I was going to walk away with a bunch of cash in my jeans, or, or, and then work for someone and and collect a paycheck. You know, it, that that isn't what what drove me. They were they were very persistent, and I was also looking as to what was the next step for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much more consolidation could we do in the industry? And and remember, mm-hmm. you you asked the question early on. How did you get your education? Yes. And yeah. and you, you know, I didn't. <laughs> right? it, it was it was educating myself, so yeah. there was definitely a hole that that I felt I had um, in my in, in in my repertoire that I needed to fill. You know, I needed to know how to you, you know really you know build build a bigger team, how to scale this, how to go to Wall Street, how to properly uh, uh, set up governance, uh, how to deal with a board. Um, you know how to recruit real you know talent to scale up this this thing if that's where we were going to go. Um, so you know I, I knew that there could be a combination that if I if I hooked up with them that I'd I'd be able to gain that 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 in information and as I said to my best friend you know come out of this even more lethal and hmm. and Carlisle um, uh, came to us with a proposition where we would merge the two companies the Zeckelmans hmm. would take out a pretty sizable dividend, um, you know, as, as typical private equity would do, they'd, they'd put some leverage on the company. And I, I of course, um, uh, limited what leverage they could put yeah. on. And we put the two together and, um, and off we went and we made some acquisitions and they, um, you know, I ran the company, uh, did a lot of consolidation, uh, uh, reduced working capital, cleaned up the balance sheet quite a bit. And, um, you know, literally a couple of years later, Caught some, you know, big tailwind with uh, commodity run-ups in 2008, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you know, Carlisle um, at that point said, "Look, let's put the business up for sale," and and we did that, 
And, um, you know, uh, we had a bid on the company and a signed deal to, to sell it at $3.6 billion um, uh, to a Russian steel uh, uh, conglomerate. Hmm. And, um, you know, the deal fell apart. Uh, it fell apart uh, with, uh, you know, of course, the collapse of Lehman Brothers and okay. um, the, the late 08 and 09 financial crisis. And, you know, it was, uh, it, was, it, it, was a, it was a tough year the next year. But, you know, I, I knew how to manage our way through that from my early years of mm-hmm. conserving cash and, and generating cash. And, um, you know, we did. We, we paid down a ton of debt by liberating the working capital. And, uh, and I kept running the company. And, um, and, and through those years, I learned a lot. I mean, I learned a ton. And, um, you know, several years later, Carlisle came to me and said, you know, do you um, – we want to put this company up for sale. We need to return some money to, out of our, you know, to our LPs out of our industrial fund. And you're the logical buyer. You've been a great partner. And would you consider, you know, you know, buying the company before we put it up for sale? I jumped at that yeah. because, and I'll, I'll tell you, yeah. probably one of the biggest regrets I had was actually. Um, that potential sale to the Russians. You know, um, I, I was 39 years old at the time. Yeah. Uh, or, or, sorry, about 42 at the time that that, that would have happened. And what was I going to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, this is all I know how to do. It's all I've done for my whole life. And I, and also the, the, the people that we have, you know, the, the people that got me there. I, I just felt that the stewardship would have been gone. I, I felt the energy would have been gone. I was worried about them. I really, it was, you know, I was really distraught. And, um, you, you know, the, the fact that the 09, 08, 09 yeah. collapse happened and this deal didn't happen <laughs> was the best thing that ever happened to me. And oh. I got the chance to buy it back and, uh, and I did that. Oh, so good. Well, Barry, we're going to take just a short sure. break here. And you have teed up so many of our favorite topics, including how to build a team, how to scale governance, working with boards, mergers, acquisitions, cultures (laughs) embedded in all that. So I'm hoping to hit on some of those topics when we come back after a short break. So this is Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and we will be right back. This is Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and we can thank Dion Simpkins for that wonderful, <laughs> wonderful uh, transition to the second half of the show. And I am really delighted to be here tonight speaking with our guest, Barry Ziegelman, who is chairman and CEO of Ziegelman Industries. And Barry, before the break, uh, we were talking about how you turned the company around at age 19 from the black, from the red into the black and so attractive that the private equity giant Carlyle Group, um, merged with Atlas Tube and made the company, you know, so attractive that you had in front of you a deal of, if I got it right, $3.6 billion deal to sell the company to the Russians. And, of course, this was at a time when we had the financial crisis of 2008, which broke the deal apart and later gave you the opportunity to buy back the company. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, you did. That's that's it. The little step in, interim in there, I had to go collect a two hundred and fifty million dollar break fee from a Russian oligarch, which is a Whoa. probably do a whole other show on. But that, oh wow, you know, that's another story. Oh. But, but that yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and I have to say, there's a lot of poetry here for me because you know the whole you're coming into this business at the very beginning was in the you know forgive the pun here, but in the wake of your father's death. And now here you have opportunity to buy the business back in the wake of the financial crisis. So there are silver linings and so many black clouds here for you. 
Yeah, well, there there always is, you know. So so you you can't feel sorry for yourself. You you've got to, you know. Everyone will have obstacles in their life. No one's that lucky, and yeah. um, you just have to find your way to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and 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 work through them. And and you you've got to have that tenacity. Well, let let me, if I may, just ask you a question about the merger. And as I understand from you, you were running the company. Um, a merger can be a tricky business, uh, you know, a marriage of sorts and a bringing together of, of different cultures and climates and organizations. Can you say a little bit about why that merger worked? Well, you know, so you're you're very right. You're spot on. Um, you know, I think it's how you go into it and how you handle it. Um, you know, you know, all too often the you know, there's a, a you know someone who a company that buys another company, you know, will go in as if they're the victor, and they're the conqueror. And you know, if you walk in and start to do that, and and that you're you know you're the be all end all, and you know it all, and it's your way or the highway, boy, you you just cl- you know you close all the doors that are open to you. You turn people off. You make them guarded. They're all waiting for the axe to drop and. You know, I just never have approached things that way. You, mm-hmm. you know, I walk in and, and it's exactly like like you said, you know, it's a marriage. Mm-hmm. And you're now part of the family. There's a lot of things you do right and and, uh, and there's a lot of things we do right. And let's get the best of both worlds and, and, and put them together. So, you know, it, it comes with communication, mm-hmm. um, a lot of it. Um, almost a, almost a painful amount. So a lot of town halls. Let them know who you are, where you came from, what you're about, what you're trying to achieve. Y- you have to you have to take the anxiety level down, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a notch. And you know, I always equate it to to you know, you know a, a bus driver. I'm I'm a bus driver, and I, I want every passenger to know that I'm a qualified driver. The bus is well maintained. Um, you're getting on it. Here's your seat, so you know where you're sitting. Um, you know where we're going. I'm going to mm-hmm. let you put your hand on the wheel with me, so you know when I turn left or turn right. Um, your foot on the accelerator and your foot on the brake, um, so you're so you're you're never worried. You know when we're going to stop and how long it's going to take to get there. And when you start to communicate in that mm-hmm. way with people, their anxiety level goes down. They're not mm-hmm. like, "What's this guy doing? Where are we headed to? You know, what what's the end game here?" Um, and, and that engages people, right? Yeah. It, it shows, it, it gives them the, the feeling that you trust them mm-hmm. and, and, and that you, you want them to be engaged and in, and, and, and in the decision-making process. And, you know, they let their guard down, quite, quite frankly. And, um, you know, they start to really uh, perform. And you give them, uh, you know, incentives to do that as well, right? Where they can control their own destiny, and we're we're heavily incentivized in 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 all of our plants and with mm-hmm. all of our management, with no uh, with no uh, uh, cap on those incentives. So, you know, uh, uh, typically in our company, you make a lot of money, but the productivity that that we gain from that, the performance. Um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a win-win situation where we win and, um, and the teammates win and, and the customers win, the suppliers win, the communities win. And it's a beautiful formula. And it's really not that, that, that complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the listeners will know that one of my uh, pet research projects is perceptions of leadership. And I like to ask um, students in my class or participants in exec ed programs just to stop, pause, and think about leadership and to say, you know, like, what image comes to mind? And your image of a bus driver is really wonderful uh, because there's something, you know, I can I can hear Mike in the back of my head talking about the driving and the sort of the strategic vision and giving people a sense of where where they are going. Um, but it's also a very humble image <laughs> as yeah, well. Yeah. And well, you know, there's part of that too. You know, people want to know that you're a real person, right? Um, that right. you've been there. You know what they're going through, and there's there's empathy, right? I mean, right. it's important. You have to have that. You have to understand what it takes and and what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And you're in it together. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. on this bus to bus together. Yeah. So good. So we've talked a little bit about mergers, and again, uh, having just spent. I shared at the opening uh, 
a week with Mike Yuseem in China, I've been thinking about mergers and acquisitions, one of the topics that he touched on. And he made a wonderful comment along the way saying that acquisitions are often uh, best when the company doing the acquisition has clarity, a good amount of clarity about what this acquisition will provide. And that company is often surrounded by other potential competitors or other other potential buyers. So I'm just wondering, as you went through these, you know, a whole list of acquisitions, was there a kind of a common theme or something that we could we could glean from your experience? Well, sure. I mean, I, I mean, the, the first is: is it strategic? Is it truly strategic? I mean, a lot of acquisitions happen because you know they just someone wants to grow or someone got pitched an idea, and and you know, so we look for the you know re- the real strategy in it. You know, is, what's it doing to our footprint? Mm-hmm. About our product base, our, our, our manufacturing capabilities, the ability to consolidate and fully load plants. Um, you know, how are our customers going to perceive this? Can we liberate working capital to 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 pay for part of this acquisition? And we always do that. We're mm-hmm. very very uh, uh, savvy at that, and we operate with a very lean networking capital structure um, without compromising and, in fact, enhancing uh, uh, you know our service and our and our um, our ability to to take care of our customers. So um, you know, so all of those come into play. Um, the other big thing is the people. Okay. So, you know, if I'm looking at an acquisition, who am I getting with that, yeah. right? I mean, hmm. again, you, you can buy a lot of equipment and a lot of physical assets and a, and a customer list, but if you don't have, you know, hmm. there's companies that, you know, theoretically we should go buy, but I look at them and I say, what am I buying there? They, there's no talent. You know, hmm. they, 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 they don't have a proper marketing force. They, they're, they're not great operators, uh, you know, all of those things. So I'm not going to go pay for that. So, you know, we, we've done acquisitions that on the, you know, on the surface are, a, you know, a 6X multiple or a 7X, and, and really they turned out to be a 2X, mm-hmm. you know, with, with working capital that I liberated, uh, the market synergies that are, that are there, the operational synergies, the steel buying, the freight and logistics, all of those things that, that you have to, to weigh in. So, you know, when we look at an acquisition, it's not just to grow. It, it's to enhance the whole you know, uh, um, uh, you know, aspect and operations uh, of the company, our customers, our our our, uh, our teammates, and, and certainly our suppliers, and and with a much longer term, you know, view than just hey, we can pump some numbers for a quarter or two. Very good. So I really appreciate that, you know, the importance of the strategic acquisition and not just to grow to grow. I'm really curious. Here's a naive question, Barry. How do you go about assessing something like the talent or the people? How do you know, for example, that a marketing unit in a company isn't maybe what it's, you know, what it could be or should be? Yeah, well, well, look. In general, you know, we're dealing with companies that we've competed against, right? Okay. You know, so you know, we know them. We know the people. We know their footprint. We know who they sell to and how they sell. Um, you, you know, we know who they're buying from. We, we, you know, we know their strengths and weaknesses. So, I, I, I guess, you know, to answer mm-hmm. that question properly is, is, you know, stick close to your knitting, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, you, you know, in the old days, you know, I, I remember my father sold a company in the mobile home manufacturing business to a company called Beatrice Foods. Oh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, that's a Chicago that company, company, isn't it? But, you know, what is Beatrice Foods trying to buy a mobile home manufacturer yeah. for, mm-hmm. right? So, and that's why Beatrice Foods failed. Mm-hmm. And, and and it all failed. So you know, stick to what you know. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, um, you know, people will say, you know, d- don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, it's okay if you got a, a chicken that keeps laying eggs and filling <laughs> that basket. It's fine. You know. So uh, I I I don't pretend to to know a lot of other industries and and other things. I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And and our whole team knows that as well. So you know we um you know we we like to do what what uh, what really you know fits in, right? Yeah, so good. So now just a follow up culture question here. We talked a little bit about the importance of merging cultures when you you know when you, literally when you do a merger. How about uh, sensitivity to culture when you do an acquisition? Well, you, you know, again, you know, people, you come into to to a plant and and uh, or a company, 
And, you know, one of the first things is, you know, what are they going to do with us? You know, they're, they're firing us. They're going to chop heads. They're going to do all these things. And, and look, some of that needs to be done. I mean, I mean we're not I – love, I love people. I love seeing them excel and succeed. I love helping build communities. But that isn't our purpose, right? Um, I, you know, we are going to right-size a you know, facility. And we'll go in and talk to them, and I'm, I'm never going to lie to them. They, they may not like what I have to see, but, say, but I will never lie. But, you know, the first thing you do is you go in and be respectful. So, you know, probably one of, one of the, the, the first things I do in, in any plant acquisition or company acquisition, I go on the shop floor and I go into the bathrooms. And, you know, people say, why are you going in there? I said, well, I want to see the culture of this company and how, how they were being treated. And they said, well, you go in the bathrooms? I said, that's right. I said, if, so if good. this bathroom isn't nice enough for my daughter or my wife to go in, then it's not, it's not you know, they're not taking care of their people. And we'll go in and immediately spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the locker rooms and bathrooms so that these people can just go to the bathroom with some dignity and respect and feel like we care about them. And it starts there. Oh, I really love it. That's so, so great, <laughs> Barry. Thank you for that. Let me remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, and tonight I really do have the pleasure of speaking with Barry Ziegelman, the chairman and CEO of Ziegelman Industries. Barry, uh, a follow-up question, and this is, again, another naive one, so bear with me, but these acquisitions cost money, and I know at one point uh, you were considering an independent public offering, an IPO. Whatever happened with that? Well, he, you know, the IPO was a little bit of a different path for a different reason. Okay. Um, you know, various reasons, and there was a, a potential to do it. And, uh, you know, really, uh, there, there were a couple reasons we didn't. Um, you know, one, we wanted, to, we wanted to do it to gain some currency to do some bigger deals, and it would have taken a public currency to, okay. to, go, to go do that. Um, some of those opportunities fizzled, um, you know, as we got, we got into this. Uh, the other thing that happened was, you know, when, when, we, when I was on the road show and doing this and the questions I got – uh, you, you know, I, I I realized that they didn't understand our company. They kept lumping us with just a general steel company, mm-hmm. and and the value that was here. And I, I was you know pretty disillusioned actually by by what I saw. You, you know, they said you're a great company. You make a ton of money. You generate a lot of cash. But where do you go from here? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and and I saw that you know this whole public arena to me. Uh, started to become this, you know, really, it's like gambling. And, you know, you had these guys who were in charge of billions and tens of billions of dollars who were all looking for the next, you know, um, Google or the next Amazon or the next uh, 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 Facebook. And those are true, true unicorns. But they were putting money into, into, into businesses that, you know, it was unbelievable to me. I mean, I still look at them today, these... You know the businesses they're putting money into that have no hope in heck of of ever earning a, a profit or a return, but yet they spike up the stock value, they sell them, and you know these guys you know make make their money. And we weren't sexy enough to do that. You know all we were going to do is print money every year, grow at a at a pretty decent clip, and once in a while do a, do a bigger bigger move, generate a lot of cash, and return to shareholders. I and but I but we were being penalized for that. Where companies behind us were doing three hundred million in sales, losing one hundred and eighty million dollars, and now have a market cap of six billion dollars. So I said, I- I'm just not getting in this game with people that are that stupid. And, and, <laughs> and quite, quite, I'm not. And I'll, I'll be very blunt about it. Mm-hmm. It's actually scares the, the hell out of me today that this is going on. And, uh, you know, I think we need to get back to some pretty basics of, you know, you got to know how to make payroll at the end of the week. And none of these guys do. They, a lot of these companies aren't even remotely close to it and won't, don't have a chance in hell of getting there. Okay. So the company remains very, uh, very truly a family business. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And now I know there are many people listening who are part of family businesses. So, just some wisdom that you could share with us from that experience. What would you advise us if we find ourselves in a family business? 
Well, I, you, look, I think you have to you, you have to assess you know wh- wh- where your path is, where you want to go, and 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 you know what you want to achieve. You know, you also have a responsibility to everyone who else who is in the business. I, I all too often I see a lot of businesses. You know, there's there's several out there today that we've looked at where, you know, the owner's really up there in age, he's 80 years old or, or, mm-hmm. or, or even older, and doesn't want to sell. And, you know, in one case, the gentleman's putting it into a, a trust uh, to go into a charity. And, and you know, and, and look, I'm sure he's doing it for all the honorable reasons and feels he's doing the right thing. But, you know, the trust, quite frankly, doesn't want to own a steel tubing business. The trust would rather just have the money and, 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 and you know, because that's what they know how to manage, not not an entrepreneurial business like the mm-hmm. tubing business. And, and, um, and also you're letting down the very people who you think and say you love and got you there. I mean, you know, we have a responsibility to all 2,700 uh, teammates that we have, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, we need to make sure that this company is in a position to take care of them, that, that they're going to have a job the next day, that they're going to be able to pay their mortgage, that they're going to have health care, you know, and send their kids to school and, uh, and take a vacation and do all of those things. And, you know, so if we look at things in a, in a selfish way and, and, and don't manage it right and don't set the company up, you know, you know for the future transition properly, I'm letting all of those mm-hmm. people down who I owe everything to. And I'm just not going to do that. So, um, you know, I think you need to, to really formulate your plan um, um, and, uh, and, and set out the goals of what you want to do. You've got to make sure the company's on, on solid footing on a balance sheet wise and, um, and, and make sure you've got the proper people in place for transition because you're not going to live forever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and second generation may not necessarily, you know, be the right thing or third generation to go into the business. It doesn't always work that way. I mean, You've got to have an absolute passion uh, for the business and a love for it to, to, to excel at it and, and, you know, keep the business in, in the position it is. And, and, well, gosh, all too, you know, we always see a lot of times the second or third generation yeah. of the business fail. And that's, it's not because those, the, the, the second or third generation that goes into it doesn't mean the right things or have the right intentions. They don't have the love. Mm-hmm. It's not really you know what they want to do, and and you have to make sure that you don't you don't force that upon uh, you know the family members. You're going into the business. I mean, I would never do that to my children. If they want to you know go into it and they you know they they want that opportunity, great. But they'll have to mm-hmm. earn their way too. I mean, it's not fair to everybody else there that. You know, my son would would come in and be the president or vice president yeah. of the organization. That's just not right, and 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 he knows that too. But you know, so you know, make sure you're putting the the you know transitioning through the family properly. Make sure you're putting the right people in place. Make sure you're doing the right thing, not just for you, but for everybody who got you there. It's your responsibility. You owe it to them. Oh, so good, Barry. So I, I'm wondering if. Uh, part of the way that you keep yourself focused in this regard is through your use of the board. Is that is that true? Um, it, it is. I, I you know I learned this in in the Carlisle era. Um, you know, a gentleman who who really was a great ben- mentor to me. He's an extremely close friend, and actually is still on our board uh, uh, now, even though we're you know a private company. Is a gentleman named Armin Lazan. Who um, who ran a, a series of, of of larger companies started his days with GE, but I learned a lot about the decorum and and how to run a board, who to place on a board, what you're trying to get out of them. And today, you know, we're a private company, and yet I maintain a board that has independent directors on it. And and you know, why do I do that? People say, why do you yeah. even have a board? I mean, in the early days, my board meeting was shaving in the mirror in the morning. <laughs> And looking in the mirror. So, right. <laughs> you know, I, I, again, I do that to have checks and balances there. So, you know, everybody knows this isn't just the Barry show. Right. Um, I have uh, brothers who, who uh, you know, obviously still own a, a large portion of the business who, who want to make sure that, you know, there's people in place uh, uh, looking at it as well and having, having a, a, a different view. Mm-hmm. I want to be challenged on things. I, I certainly don't want to be surrounded by, by yes men and yes women. I, I want to be challenged and need to be challenged because if you surround yourself with 
with people who are just like you. You 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 know you're very one dimensional, and you don't you know the business will falter. I mean, you're only looking at it with with one view, and you you don't have that 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 broadness of of um, of opinion and ideas. So. Having that there is great. Uh, uh, the independent board members and mm-hmm. and also look, they're they're there to to give everyone else comfort, right? You know that that we are making the right decisions, that we are questioning these decisions, we are vetting them properly. Whether that be the banks that we we deal with or the teammates that 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 are in our company, know that the that the stewardship of this company is is um, you know being done properly. The pe- the right people are in place. Um, they can count on us. In other words, they know who that bus driver is, and they feel comfortable. And uh, you know, everyone who deals with us feels comfortable. So I think it's um, I think it's really important. I think it's a, a unique dynamic and dimension that that it gives the company. And um, again, I, you know, I'm not a control freak in that in mm-hmm. that manner. I want to have that um, um, th- that that feedback, and you want to have those opinions, and and certainly uh, uh, give up a little bit of that that control. Well, very good. Barry, we have just about a minute or two left. And if I just back up, take an even broader view, uh, you know, right now we're talking about your company and it's been doing just brilliantly well and against a backdrop of tariff and trade wars. So any thoughts? I welcome you just to like to look forward. Any thoughts about the future in light of the in light of the uh, backdrop of tariffs yeah. and trade wars? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, you know, uh, I've fought uh, um, uh, dumping from from you know countries for for many years. Uh, won a case at the WTO. Um, I, I built you know, my company starting in Canada, shipping into the U.S. So mm-hmm. you know, I know all about cross border trade, and and, yeah. and I'm a free trader at heart. But you know. I'm a fair trader, and and you know I I want to you know I want to get in the ring and fight with anybody you know you know fairly. I, I I welcome that. I like that. It makes us better. It makes us stronger. But you know we spend more time um, a, as a nation worrying about you know people taking steroids and cheating in the Olympics than the steroids that that other countries are taking and cheating against us. And I, I will tell you that. You know the the problem I believe in America and and, and Canada and Western countries today and many of them is that we are losing that base that manufacturing base and that job base and it's creating havoc and you know when communities don't have a purpose when those jobs go and and people don't have a purpose purpose it leads to collapse it leads to crime it leads to drugs it leads to broken families it leads to you know a, you know lack of education um it leads to poor health and poor health choices and all of those things have a cost on our society so just because a good comes in cheaper doesn't mean it's really cheaper. There's a there's a there's an added cost, and and society is bearing that. And we want to trade with everybody, but we have to do it fairly. We have to have rules in place. People have to adhere by them. And all of our countries will be stronger for it. It's about balanced and fair trade, and we need that. So when we think we're getting cheap goods from China, there's really a big cost to them on the back end, and we see it. And we see it in the tensions that are out here. And when they talk about the collapse of the middle class, um, it, it, we need to bring that back. And we need to give those communities a purpose. And we need to have those people have, have jobs and accelerate. And it's going to be much better for, you know, the community at large. And I think we'll be a lot stronger for it. And guess what? China will have a big market to sell into if we're stronger. So well. <laughs> we just have to balance it. So I think there's a I think that this is round one of many, um, and it's not going to be pretty, it's, uh, but it's a tough fight, and we've got to get into it and, uh, you know, uh, get everybody on the same page. Well, Barry, you know, and that's a perfect conclusion in my return trip from China, and I really want to thank you again. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, and uh, you know, you know, good luck in the future. Thank you, Barry. Well, everyone, you've been listening to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, and I'd like to thank you for listening, and of course, thank Michelle, who's here tonight, for Patty, and thank Dion, Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer. So, come back next week to Leadership in Action, SiriusXM, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. Good night. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 